the way society had gone. It, it, it was room for private private business and, and um, you know, a mixed economy, but there was a balance and we've lost all the balance. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi there, and thanks for joining the Learning Future podcast. Today we're speaking with an amazing thinker and leader in Australia. Professor Patrick McGarry is the Executive Director of Origin, Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, and a founding director of the National Youth Mental Health Foundation, also called Headspace. He's a world-leading researcher in the area of early psychosis and youth mental health, and has been directly involved in research and clinical care for homeless people, for refugees, and asylum seekers. He's a key architect of the Headspace model here across Australia and has been successful in advocating for its national expansion. He has been published extensively across many different uh, literature circles and currently serves as the editor-in-chief of Early Intervention in Psychiatry. Uh, Professor McGorry, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you, Luca. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. I'd love you to start by just sharing with us what is the big question that you've been focused on most through your career and your work so far? Um, I suppose um, it's hard to like capture it in, in uh, a sentence or two, but it's really, the, I would say, the, the kind of the, the plight or the predicament and the neglect of the mentally ill, um, of people with mental ill health. Um, and, you know, obviously they receive appalling treatment in, in, in previous times, but even as the rest of the world modernised and, and, and the rest of healthcare kind of moved into the 20th and 21st centuries, mental health was, or mental illness was really left behind in the 19th century and, um, and, and the quality of care, the kind of attitude and, and stigma and discrimination, is, it persists to this day. Even, even now, you know, we, we contrast, um, you know, the care of the mentally ill Despite all the awareness, or all the all the superficial, you know, awareness campaigns and Beyond Blue and everything else, the reality for people with particularly with more complex forms of mental illness is is still pretty dire. Um, despite the capacity to treat them very effectively, it's just not delivered properly um, uh, or, or or to um, in a timely way. So that's been the thing. Been trying to uh, advocate for modernise. Um, yeah, stamp out all, all the poor practice that, um, and the you know the, the suffering that's caused by a, by a neglected and dysfunctional system. But at the same time, try to create solutions and innovations powered by medical research to actually improve the care of the mentally ill. And basically, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, sort of much more an advocacy role combined with those other roles to sort of make that happen. And and that's that's met with a fair bit of success, you could say, in terms of a base camp for different mm -hmm. ways of doing things, but, you know, it's still not routine. It's still not, there's a huge gap still, which we call the missing middle, you know, between people right. that can get simple primary care sort of help and the people who need more complex help. There's a, there's a whole group, probably millions of Australians fall into that hole in the middle where they can't actually access it. And they contrast, they, they, they contrast their experience when they have mental ill health with, you know, um, when they have corresponding physical health problems. So I've heard many patients describe when I had my cancer treated or when I had my heart attack or when I had my diabetes treated, 
the experience was completely different, chalk and cheese, between the way I was treated by the health system and, 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 and uh, my experience when I, I was presenting with a mental health problem. So, 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 so we've got a huge amount of work to do, but I feel like, you know, at least we're on the journey now. Mm, that's, that's really fascinating. I, I remember as an educator, you know, hearing this phrase that we don't ask, we don't ask someone with a broken leg to run laps of an oval. And yet there mm. is something about, you know, the psychology, the mental aspect of this that means mm. that perhaps it's not treated with the same, with the same seriousness. I, I'm well, interested you can't, in your, I, th- I think it's because uh, that's a really good example. Because I think it's, it's easy to sort of um, almost dis- disbelieve or, 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 or um, what's the word, downplay the significance mm. of it. serious mental illness, like maybe severe depression or, or psychotic illness where you, you know, are hearing voices and have delusional beliefs so you can't really function properly because you're psychotic. And, and yet, somehow, because you can't see it, people people don't don't give it um, the, you know, the credit or the seriousness. And and it's almost like, um, especially with depression, uh, people expect to just pull themselves together, or like you say, run laps to the oval when they when they really can't. <laughs> mm. I'm really I'm really interested in it's the idea of modernising, you know. And obviously, at this particular point in our human arc of history, you know, there's a lot of disruption. There's a lot of um, mm. Obviously, it's also revealing parts of our societies, um, which also mean that we have not yet come to a, a, a place where everyone can be connected and have the, the right support to enable flourishing or thriving collective well-being. So if you were, if, if you were to say, um, what might the future of mental health, well, you know, well-being what could it look like if we, if, you know, what would that be and how might we enable ourselves to get there? You know, at this point where we're seemingly taking stock of the way that, for example, schools function, where the education systems, you know, what do we focus on as success where we see, you know, standardised assessments falling by the wayside? Um, it's a really interesting moment, I think, of reflection. Yeah, and, and I think with the pandemic and, 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 the, and, and even more, more worrying, um, the, the economic collapse that we're we're entering into, we're going to see huge pressures placed on on, on um, the health, mental health and well-being of people. Um, and already, ev- almost everyone living through the pandemic has become more conscious of their mental health and is feeling you know exhausted or stressed or and, and tired. So there's a superficial understanding of what mental ill health and mental illness actually is from that. Um, but but there's a deeper level, you know, sort of when you're talking about a need for care or, 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 the, or the illness side of it as opposed to the loss of well-being, you know, if I can put it that way. They're kind of overlapping, but they are kind of two different qualitative uh, sets of experiences in a way because everyone can feel stressed or sad for, for a short period or to which they adapt and they, and they continue to function. But... Only a subset of people, and it's quite a big subset at any one time, maybe, you know, a quarter of a, or to a fifth of the society at any one time is experiencing clinically significant mental ill health. Um, and over, over the lifespan, there's a study from New Zealand showing that um, when, when young people were followed from childhood through to the age of 45, 85% of them develop a period of diagnosable, you know, mental ill health. So, in other words, everyone experiences clinically significant mental health, uh, mental health problems at some point, um, even if it's brief or, or time limited. 
Um, and, and if you look at it, you know, some people say, well, that just means it's meaningless. You're just, you're just basically pathologizing human experience, the human condition. But mm. you don't say that about physical health. You don't say like, like 100% of people probably well before the age of 45 would have been the doctor for physical health problems and, yeah. and, uh, and accepted that that was just part of life and, 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 it, and, it, and it warranted a medical or, 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 a, or a clinical clinical response. But when it comes to mental health, somehow we're supposed, supposed to be somehow immune and completely healthy and, and uh, this is like an, an achievable state for most people, you know. Uh, it's completely not true. It's not mm. possible to live life without periods of poor mental health. And what's been denied is the need to respond to it in anything more than just some kind of coping or peer support type way, you know. Now, peer yeah. support's great. If you've got it, if you've got friends and family, that's, that's sensational or, or other peers that will help. But, you know, just to deny that the necessity for, you know, people like me to, to be involved um, or to minimise it, which is probably a, a fairer uh, sort of a analysis, um, and it's been massively minimised. So it's been restricted to the most extreme and severe cases and who used to be locked up in asylums and now they're, yeah. they're after in sort of, you know, poorly funded state government services and, um, and maybe a little bit of primary care or, or a lot of primary care level care from the, fo- the federal government. But, but yeah, it's been denied and minimised and, and there hasn't been enough effort put into the research and innovation in the field. So we have, coming back to the point about modernisation, we, yeah. we, we still have modernised the field. So it's, it's sort of um, at the same what state of evolution as, say, cancer treatment or, or diabetes um, or any other area of health. Mm. That's... That's really interesting. I mean, I you just look at the zeitgeist, you know, what people talk about in the culture and the idea of the asylum and all these hangovers that I think feed into um, our tendency not to want to talk about these things. Um, yeah. And so I'd, I'd love you to just unpack for us a little bit more about, you know, the missing middle you spoke to, um, but also the idea, of course, that if we create conditions that are conducive for, you know, states of well-being, um, and we do that through intentional design of, for example, a school or of a primary healthcare provider or of kind of the community support ecosystem, um, to use that language. It, it, will, will that, it, how might that improve the trajectory? How might it normalize? You know, the idea of, you know, someone saying, for example, Pat, you know, I'm going to go see my therapist still has a particular edge to it in our conversations in society. You can't yeah. imagine like a 15-year-old, you know, high school student saying that to their peer group, you know. It's, there's still, I think, tragically, it's not normalised. And yet we are, as you've just pointed out, you know, it is an, it's a common experience that all of us will have at some point. Yeah, well, probably it's better than it used to be, but, but it's still got a way to go. Um, I think we're in transition probably and... And maybe the word therapist is a bit sort of, you know, Woody Allen, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, sure, yeah. But, you know, if, yeah. if you say I'm going to go and see the school counsellor, I'm going to go, if I'm going to go to Headspace, you know, like we created this place called Headspace, which is not, you know, heavy-duty therapy or, or, um, or, you know, mental health clinic. It's just a space where you can talk to someone and, you know, they've got some skills and it's like um, it's a little bit more, what's the word, low-key perhaps yeah. you could say. So. So that, I reckon that's the way to do it, and, and we, we've made, we've managed to create those cultures by talking to young people and getting their advice about how to do it. You know, so, so I think that's really helped a lot. Um, but culture, culture, and and design is very very important. I'm sitting in sitting in this building here, 
um, up until about two years ago, we, we had a, you know, a, a sort of a century-old crumbling infrastructure, which was, you know, portables and all sorts of, it, it was like um, working in a third-world environment, the facility that we actually worked out of. Um, now we have this state-of-the-art sort of facility, which the state and federal governments and, and philanthropy contribute to. It's our mothership at Origin, which is like a mm. medical research institute, which provides clinical care and not just for this part of Melbourne, but it's like a national structure and a, a global structure, actually. It's, it's something that um, high-quality work was always done at, but now it's being done in, 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 in you know, a, a, a type of facility that just exudes respect and, and um, symbolically sort of validates the work. Yeah. So everyone, and it was co-designed with young people, it's a beautiful environment, and everyone's morale is much better, our confidence, our, our kind of... Um, you know, efficiency and, uh, and everything is, is improved and modernised and state-of-the-art. So, so, I mean, that, that's it. And that all came from the design and, 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 and uh, the symbolic statement that, that the facility actually sort of uh, uh, conveys. I think this process of human-centred design or co-design, design thinking generally, the idea of involving yeah. not just beneficiaries but actually co-actors in a process is is powerful one of the great examples that i love is the idea of a desire path mm -hmm. which is where rather than paving everything and getting people to walk on those paths you wait to see where people walk and then you pave their paths and that idea of bringing the human into all of our systems which i think we've lost sight of um in our haste for growth and progress you know technological convergence um I think a lot of people are finding that in if there have been silver linings, has been in the idea of being connected to a local ecosystem. For example, here in South Australia, where I sit, we have park visitations up 150% across the state, national park visitations. Mm -hmm. uh, and people getting out into kind of nature, into the ecosystem. I, th I think it's just an interesting way to think about, you know, what are we signalling we care about? What are we paying attention to? Um, I think is really an interesting question. I want to ask you about your insight as a, as a health professional around the way that we design on this question of design for something like a school or a university. So the idea that the environment always plays a role. But of course, mm -hmm. we would say that learning and well-being are kind of two sides of the same coin or two strands of the double helix. You know, what, from your vantage point, what do you think schools can build upon in terms of their strengths? What, what can they try to avoid in terms of enabling the right kind of services or connection to services um, and also the right type of experiences that enable, you know, mental well-being to, to be achieved? Well, um, I guess you, as a teacher, you would, you would, you'd have a much clearer picture of that than me probably. But what, what I think about schools is that um, you know, they, 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 they're focusing on, if we, if we remember that, 50% of mental ill health will, will be apparent by the, or will have started at least by the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24, 25, then schools capture a huge amount of onset and prevalence of, of mental ill health. And the teachers know that because they see it every day. They might mislabel it sometimes and call it behavioural. Behavior. You know, mm. yeah, which is sort of, you know, an unhelpful concept actually. It, it, it means that, it's blaming the kid rather than actually sort of understanding the kid. Um, so, um, but anyway, um, teachers are, are quite wise in my experience, but they, they're pretty unsupported, you know, so, so they don't have much help 
having recognised a problem to, to actually deal with it, except in teacher-type ways. It's like the police. They, the police know how to deal with, you know, aggressive people, but it's not necessarily good if you're a mentally ill person who's being aggressive. You might get shot. <laughs> so, mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, teachers don't shoot people, but they, they do do punitive things to some of those, those especially young male kids. And and, um, and, they, and if there are self-harming females for kids, for example, they might not really understand what's, what's driving that. So... But only in, in general, teachers are, are really good allies for us, and we want to support uh, teachers with probably in-reach type programs. You know, mm. and even screen, screening, if that could be done in a careful way, identifying the kids that need 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 special help. Um, there are ways that can be done in schools with peer support and, and other mechanisms as well. And then connection to headspace centres, which you know, headspace centre. Um, Trouble is that they're still a little bit sparsely spaced, so so that there are too many schools depending on a particular single headspace centre. So right. we still haven't built it to scale. You know, once someone once told me that you know in our part of Melbourne, you know, there are three hundred high schools, each with a budget of ten to twenty million a year, and our whole mental health service for that area, you know, is, is worth about twenty five million dollars. So so we're incredibly under resourced for for what we're trying to do support, mm. but schools. Are Critical schools in rural and regional areas who don't even have access to a local headspace, it might be 50 k's away, um, they, they actually need a different type of approach. And maybe the, the school in the community, especially high school, could be the venue for providing a whole range of, um, of, of, of services for, for, the, for the teenagers, you know, including you know, physical and mental health. Um, it's, it's not a bad venue. The other thing I say about schools is it doesn't suit a lot of all kids. I, I, a lot of the patients I've treated in Headspace are being mm-hmm. homeschooled because they get they got bullied so badly, uh, or or they just were you know perhaps a little bit more socially awkward or maybe on the spectrum or, or something that they didn't yeah. fit into a face to face classroom type environment and they flourished a lot more if they were homeschooled. And we've seen some of that happen now with um you know the, the pandemic. You know. So it's a complex area, but one of my colleagues um, at La Trobe University, Sian Bowman, is doing a PhD on this and surveyed hundreds and hundreds of teachers from rural and regional schools, and she's got a really good sort of analysis of, of, uh, of the issue from that point of view. Mm, fantastic. Um, so I wonder, what we're often finding, I think, is thinking of a school as a learning ecosystem is a helpful reframe. Uh, and, of course, we have some of the best schools and best experiences happening anywhere in the world here in Australia, but it's, it's not the case in every community. And largely yeah. that's because of the way that education is seen. It's also the level of support provided to hardworking professional. I mean, there's a range, it's complex. There's a range of factors at play. Um, mm. So I wonder if you could, you know, in particular from your origin work, you know, where have you seen kind of the lighthouses of practice, you know, in terms of an integrated approach that followed like, positions a human being, like in this case, a young person, for example, and really empowers them with choice, with agency, um, be they in school or in a non-formal schooling sector. What, what's kind of, are there any examples that come to your mind about kind of saying that that's what, that's kind of the emerging space we want to try to scale up and out if, if it's possible? Well, I think there are lots of lighthouses in the youth mental health field, you know, around this integrated service model, this one-stop shop model, which Headspace is an example of, and that's mm. now in about 12 or 14 different countries, bringing together the adolescents and the emerging adults between 12 and 25. That's a great age group to focus on okay. uh, together like that. But just just thinking about schools, 
Mm. One thing I did see, which I don't think has ever been scaled up, you know, which it should, uh, I think it really should be, is um, something I saw in Macquarie Fields High School in Sydney um, about 10 years ago, where a deputy principal had basically adapted an American idea, which was a yellow ribbon program, which was a school-based suicide prevention program in which the kids um, were, were given a yellow ribbon to put on their blazers in the school or the jumpers. And um, these kids, probably about 30 or 40 of them in a school of several hundred kids, um, they were senior high school kids between maybe years 10 and 12, and, and they were trained in listening skills and, and maybe a little bit of what we what some people call mental health first aid. And, and they were basically the, the go-to people. If you had a problem in the high school, yeah. um, any age, you know, if, even if you'd, like, you'd forgotten your lunch money or your mother died yesterday or, or any, any, any level of severity of problem or you're getting bullied, these are the people that you would actually go to and you could, you could actually pick which one you wanted to talk to. It wasn't like there was one school counsellor that you were forced to go and talk to. It'd be a whole an array of people that you might be able to, you'd have more trust in one than the other, so you'd go to that one. And these kids basically were the ambassadors or, or the, um, the gatekeepers, some people call that role. And they would actually be your advocate. They would actually, you know, either solve the problem themselves, you know, like lend you 10 bucks, you know, if you needed it, um, or, or they take you to, to the school counsellor or they take you down the road to the headspace centre and organise an appointment or, they'd, um, you know, they'd have a chat with, the, with one, of the, one of the teachers on your behalf or, or they'd, they'd, they'd basically problem solve and, and do what they could. And if they couldn't solve the problem themselves, they'd, 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 they'd make the connection in person uh, mm. to the next level. And it, I just thought it was sensational and very simple idea, almost cost, cost neutral. Um, but, you know, when I've spoken about to other people, you know, they, they have not actually taken it up. So, uh, other schools, any school could do this. And I, I don't know why they, they, they invent all these sort of other less, less functional and less logical sort of programs, which like the current one, um, I probably shouldn't say this in public, but, um, the federal government's funding a thing called Beyond Blue. Uh, sorry, B, sorry, BU via Beyond Blue and Headspace. Obviously, I'm involved with Headspace. And it's basically an online training program for teachers and recognition and support around mental health. I'm not saying don't do that. No. So problem has the program probably has value, and, and I'm sure it, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm not, I wouldn't say we should stop doing that. But money should be spent on these much more you know, organic and face-to-face -face sort of practical yeah. thing. Uh, and that's what I, I've heard from teachers. They, that's what they want. They want backup and they want more practical things. And, and the teachers came up with this, this themselves anyway. So it was, a, it was, a, it was um, so in terms of your, po your point about co-design, if you're going to do something in school, you'd obviously want the teachers, the kids, the parents, and the mental health professionals all involved in the pro process. Yeah. Yeah. This, the idea of a, it, it's a learning community and that idea of a common unity, you know, where, uh, because I, obviously teachers are asked to do many things currently and and aren't trained to do them all. And so the idea of there being effectively an integrated model, I think, is is a really interesting, well, I think it's the one most powerful way to go. Um, so how, yeah. do, how do you kind of connect the need with the, the service or the support um, in, in a really frictionless, um, is what we might say in entrepreneurship now, in a, in a seamless way, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I wonder about future casting. So, you know, it's 2020 and it feels like it's gone for about 15 years already so far. <laughs> so yeah. let's, I think it's still like a long way off, but 
if we get to 2030, uh, what's your hope for the way that we consider mental ill health, uh, the way that we may or may not integrate services, in, in, you know, at community, state, federal levels across Australia, across the world? What, what would you hope is the future of you know, mental health? Well, I, I would like to see it basically um, being um, delivered mostly in, 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 in a community-based sort of way through you know, um, stigma-free or, or um, very accessible sort of community hubs or, or, or platforms like, like Headspace or, or the federal government's um, funding now some early adult community mental health hubs, which would be basically backing up GPs, you know, for referrals with mental health issues. But rather than it just being pure narrow casting sort of mental health care that's provided there, you want to have that mental health expertise, but you want to have the other elements of, of need that people have, like financial advice, um, mm. maybe gambling or addiction specialists, um, housing specialists, um, physical health, you know, GPs, and also maybe exercise physiologists, these sorts of, so, so maybe a gym in the complex, a cafe. You'd want to see it in a, in a very, like you say, you're designed in a holistic design sort of way with multiple facets. And mental, mental health is, is part of this sort of multifunction sort of uh, organisation. Um, so I'm sure that's possible. I mean, community health centres are a little bit like that, except they hardly have any mental health resources. But, but, um, but, but the concept is is not that it's not rocket science, really. It's it's um it's a multiple multifunction service centre, but it's got to be small enough that it's sort of homely and, and sort of um, welcoming as well. So so yeah, it, it, that, that, there's, there's that sort of size feature. You don't want to go into this massive shopping centre of services either. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And I wonder how the pandemic will shift our ways of interacting here also. Yeah, uh, yeah well, some, some of the work could be digital and, and, uh, or, or telehealth, couldn't it? Like, so you, you can have a, a focal point like that in the community, yeah. a visible pl physical platform, bricks and mortar, but then you have a, like a penumbra of other, of other sort of, um, you know, connections. Well, I think we're seeing this with the, you know, future of libraries and, you know, the future right. of office space, you know, the co-office space didn't really exist in any real sense 15 years ago. So definitely emergent. Mm. Um, two final questions. One is, uh, as really an expert, global expert in this space, what is one of your biggest unanswered questions? What are you continuing to research and, and, and try to explore, you know, in terms of moving our collective intelligence forward? Well, it's a good day to ask that question because we just had Greg Hunt here, uh, the Federal Health Minister, announcing uh, $11.8 million in, in research grants from the Wellcome Trust in the UK to, to Origin to conduct um, sort of novel studies of novel treatments like cannabidiol in, in preventing psychosis um, and, and, you know, prediction of psychosis, also studies in, in depression and anxiety um, uh, looking at social connectedness there and, and, mm. and also exercise, for example. So innovative ways of, of, of trying to respond to these problems, both biological and social and, and psychological, um, and building on treatment platforms like Headspace and our early psychosis services that we have, have in parts of Australia now too. So, so we're definitely you know, trying to um, reform and um, <coughs> um, expand the, the service models and the systems, but, but also having better um, and novel treatments and, and uh, <coughs> excuse me and, and looking at the sequence of treatments so, so that we get them in the right order absolutely 
I'm I'm very interested in that. I think the converging nature of understanding is of these technologies is is fascinating. You know, synthetic biology and a range of other interesting um interesting technologies that are coming online. Last question. Um, in a sentence or two, what is your take home message for listeners from your particular vantage point in in really the health ecosystem, but frankly in, in the so the social fabric? And what what do we need to pay attention to? Um, in terms of mental health? Well, I guess um, young people are the the miners' canaries of society. Um, And if their mental health is deteriorating, which it is, even before the pandemic, and it's going to get worse still as a result of the pandemic, that says that something is seriously wrong with the way we're living and and, and, uh, with the society. Um, And I think there are things called megatrends, which I'm sure you know all about, which, which are changing and, and have changed over the last 20, 30 years. So we've seen a, a hollowing out of, of uh, what's called, what was today called the hulk of tertiary education, you know, which has uh, sort of been privatised and turned into a, a pretty, um, what's the word, um, venal business, actually, um, from something that was highly prized and valued by society previously. Mm. Um, that's one thing which young people would are deeply affected by, I think, um, uh, secondly, climate change is obviously a massive threat and, and cause of anxiety to, to young people in particular, but to everybody. Um, the, the privatisation, the neoliberal agenda, this is my political statement here, the fact that sure. we've seen um, since the days of Thatcher and Reagan and inspired by the philosopher Hayek, we've seen a, a move to basically, you know, small government privatisation of everything that moves, even though it might cost more and be much more inefficient and, and uh, have less value, it's, it's still been, it's still been, it's still happened to almost everything, including mm. the public sector, public service, the ABC, you name it, everything's been contracted out. <clears throat> Even the, the care of the people living in uh, uh, the COVID return travellers are being looked after by privatised contractors in, in hotels. So everything's been gone down that track. And, um, you know, there's terrible waste and, and, and there's a value proposition there which I think has harmed society. Mm. We've lost balance. I was just reading a, an account of Olaf Palmer, the Swedish president, um, our prime minister, sorry, that was assassinated in, 18, in 1986. <clears throat> and what he did was the exact opposite. He, he basically created a social de- democratic model which functioned extraordinarily well and, and which um, should have been, in my opinion, the model that the way society had gone, it, it, it was room for, for private private business and, and um, you know, a mixed economy, but there was a balance mm. and we've lost all the balance and, and I think we're suffering very badly from it. Even the fact that we can destroy our planet in pursuit of these, these agendas <clears throat> is, is just an indictment of, of, um, of our kind of um, operating model in, in, in most of the world now. So that to me is, is the number one sort of problem. Uh, I, I'm really unsure whether it's going to get addressed, um, but um, you know we do see you know, swings of uh, ideology through history. So I am hopeful. Well, I think if if this moment has done anything, you know, crises disrupt, but they also reveal. And I think we are seeing a renewed awareness, at least of you know even at personal but at societal levels too. You know, what kind of society do we want to be? What kind of life do we want to lead? Uh, so mm. I suppose the hope there is that we're asking better questions um, than we have previously. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the reflection I often have, Pat, is 
in our rush back to normal, we should li- which parts of normal no longer serve us and which, where do we want to hold space for the emergence of something new? And that I think is a, qu- a question we should all be, I think we should be taking the time to ask. Yeah, yeah, but we need political leaders then to basically give us an opportunity to, if we, if we answer those questions in a certain way, that we've got an option to kind of pursue those, 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 those agendas and goals. And I don't see any political party really, you know, um, operating at that level these days, sadly. I wonder, I mean, to your point around the economy, because I feel like we could have a, a whole other conversation about, you know, the new economy and universal basic services versus universal basic income and, you know, the different ideologies that underpin those particular models. We can go back to, for example, are we Hobbesian in terms of human nature or are we more Jean-Jacques Rousteau, you know, in terms of our optimistic view of, of, of what it means to be a human and how, that, how we manifest in a society? Yeah, well, just to finish on an optimistic note, I read a book called Factfulness um, um, by Hans Roskind, who died. He was a public health physician working for the World Bank. And he actually pointed out, despite, you know, the kind of um, concerns that I just expressed a few minutes ago, that most of the parameters in the world up to the time of COVID, at least, were heading in the right direction. There was less war. There was mm. less homicide. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the countries in the world that, that uh, were previously, you know, incredibly poor, there were very low resource uh, settings, have uh, shrunk to about 9 or 10% of the world. So, so I think he was, his point was, despite the media and everything in our perception, everything yes. is, is actually better. Now, that might be debatable, you know, that might, maybe, maybe all those facts are uh, not, not totally true, but... I think there is another way of looking at it, which is a bit more optimistic. So, so if we actually did ask the right questions, as you say, and, mm. and actually get the facts and, and look at look at the answers, then then we probably have a clearer way forward. Uh, Stephen Pinker talks about this, you know, angels of our better nature, where he also pulls out interesting data, which has strong critics as well about that, because of course, it's it's all well to say we're in the right trajectory, but what if you are still one of these communities that is being ostracised and and not supported. Um, the, the, one com- yeah. the, the one comment that you've reminded me of is, comes from you know, Sir David Attenborough, uh, Pat, and you know, he says, anyone who thinks we can have infinite growth in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. <laughs> and, you know, I think well, it's... A certain type of economist, you know, a market that's economist. Right, that's a market economist, <laughs> precisely. And so it's, um, it's just, well, that's right, Joseph Stiglitz and others have spoken about this for the discontents of globalisation for some time. So... Yeah. I feel like that is the backdrop to all of the conversations we are having at all different levels. You know, what are schools for? What is a society for? You know, how, how, how much does it matter how each one of us feels? What is the tension between our collective and our individual needs? You know, these are really big, big questions. Um, and I suppose to leave on an optimistic note, I, I really hope that we utilise this, this moment in history, uh, particularly fired up by the young people that are, I think, more attuned to this than ever before in terms of what kind of world we want to create. Yeah. So, Pat, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, And beyond that, for the extraordinary work that you continue to do and you've done over a really significant period of time. Um, Thank you from from me, but thank you as well from all the beneficiaries over time. Oh, thanks. That's very kind. Great to talk to you and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.